Have you all seen that bumper sticker? It says, Christians are not perfect, they're just forgiven. I hope it's not on your car. I hate that one. <laughs> if it is, it might disappear. I, I hate that bumper sticker because um, somehow what it sends the message is, um, well, don't expect us to be different from the world. Um, we're just forgiven. It doesn't mean that we look any different than anybody else. And I'm really afraid that um, in our, especially in Western Christianity, that we have come to embrace this idea that, um, well, when Jesus came, he didn't really call us to be that much different than everybody else. We just need to know that we're forgiven, and that's the important thing. And in fact, um, Early in my pastoring career, I was teaching a class, and I, and I basically had someone tell me, well, yeah, um, if, if um, I look, if my life looks exactly like somebody else's, if, if we do exactly the same things, and, and um, we're not perfect, and we do not so good things, um, I'm forgiven, so I'll go to heaven, and they're bad, so they'll go to hell because they haven't asked for forgiveness. And I just kind of looked, and I thought, don't you think there's more to Christianity than just claiming that we've been pardoned and forgiven? Didn't Jesus also come to empower us uh, so that um, all the muck and brokenness in our life might be peeled away and that image of God that we were intended to have might shine through. At least as I read Scripture, uh, that is what I hear and what I see. And really, I think in this sermon that uh, Jesus, you know, it would have been foreign um, in the first century for followers of God to think that they weren't to look different than Roman civilization. Um, the Jewish folks understood that they were called to be different. They were called to be a community that reflected God's ways. And so Jesus' teaching, when he came, uh, were a way to um, further teach this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And a good part of the sermon is all about that. And so today we're going to be picking up and reading from chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 48. But we're going to start with these first few verses. Here are these words. Jesus has... Um, he, he, he has... Um, Spoken what we call the Beatitudes, um, a, a shocking statement of what happiness looks like. If you, if you weren't here last week, um, he, he's spoken these words to say it is the poor in spirit, the people who mourn, um, people who seek after and hunger after righteousness, um, people who are persecuted. These are the people who understand happiness in this upside down world. 
And then he has reminded um, those who are following and listening to him uh, that we are called to be uh, salt and light. We are called uh, to be that which preserves the world and that which shines light into darkness. And so he continues with his teaching and he says this, Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I say to you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." Now, there's a few interesting things as I, as I listen to this uh, passage, uh, because if we're familiar with uh, the story of Jesus, we know uh, that Jesus was very controversial during his time, right? Remember, the religious leaders in a lot of times were basically criticizing Jesus because he seemed to be too lax in his interpretation of, uh, of the laws, especially the laws around the Sabbath, and, um, and so he was criticized often for that. And so here I think Jesus is trying to emphasize that he hasn't come to replace or undo the laws and the prophets, but he has come to fulfill them. And as we read and understand more, what we will find out is, is as Jesus gives this list that we'll be reading next, He's not overturning or saying we're doing away with this, but he is actually uh, transcending the law and sometimes intensifying the law and some ways interpreting it anew for his day and time. In essence, when Jesus says he comes not to abolish but to fulfill the law and the prophet, uh, he is saying that from henceforth, in some form or fashion, if we are, if you are to understand the laws and the prophets, then you need to do it through the lens of Jesus and his life and his teachings. And so he was challenging the religious leaders of the time who, who thought that uh, they were the chief interpreters. But Jesus is in essence saying, I am the chief interpreter of Scripture, I am the revelation of what it looks like for a human to live and to flourish in the kingdom of God in the midst of this upside-down world. And then he says something quite shocking. We don't hear it very shockingly because uh, we often think of the Pharisees as being Jesus' foil, Yes? We always think of Jesus as always being in tension with the Pharisees, and we don't think of the Pharisees as being righteous folks. Uh, but, but do you know that the, in the first century, 
The most righteous of people, the common people thought the Pharisees were the most holy and righteous people that there were. Common folks understood the Pharisees to be the people who knew the letter of the law and did their very best to outwardly live the letter of the law. And so if there was anybody who who was living according to the law, it was most likely uh, the Pharisees. And so Jesus says at at the beginning of this section, He says, if you are... If you are to live under God's reign, if you are to be a part of the kingdom of God, your righteousness needs to be greater than the Pharisees. Whoa. Most folks probably would have thought, we're in trouble. That's like saying that our righteousness has to be greater than Kobe's. I mean, we're in trouble if that's the case. And so it's important for us to hear just how shocking this message was that Jesus was teaching. And so in some ways, Jesus is saying you know, I didn't come to tell us that the law and the prophets, that the, that the whole story was not important. I came to interpret it properly and to show what it looks like when we live it out in real life. And so this is what he goes on to teach. Now, we may hear these words and we may scratch our heads and we may say, wait, he, he just said that he didn't come to abolish it and let, yet we're going to hear this pattern where he says, you have heard it say, but I say. So, so listen to these six examples or illustrations that Jesus gives in the rest of this passage as to what it looks like to live righteously under God's reign in this world. Beginning in verse 21, he says, You have heard it said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, I've never said that, they will be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they will be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you are with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court and you will be thrown in prison. And I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you paid the very last penny. You want me to go on? 
I'm going to go on anyway. <laughs> you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to lose a part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than your whole body go to hell. I'm going to keep going. You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But as I say to you, that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it's God's throne. You must not pledge by the earth because it's God's footstool. You must not pledge by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head because you can't turn one hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes. And your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on the right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. And when you wish to... And when they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven, the one who makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what, what need of reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do this? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. May those of us with ears to hear, hear God's word and respond this day. 
What do we do with this passage of Scripture? Oftentimes, we just kind of overlook this a Scripture as if Jesus didn't really mean, I mean, mean what He said. I mean, after all, when he, we know that He didn't mean that we should literally pull out our eyes and throw them away and cut off our hands, right? And so because He uses hyperbole, in some instances, we act as if this whole thing, really, He doesn't really intend for us to take this seriously as a way of life. And yet, it seems to me that that, in fact, is what he intended. We see this pattern. Jesus takes some element of the law or the prophets and he says, you have heard this said, this is what you have been taught. And without overturning it, without overthrowing it, he, he transcends it, he, he intensifies it, or he reinterprets it. And he gives some practical implications of what that might look like. And so, um, while it is impossible, I could do a sermon on... Um, each one of these individually. But I want to try to touch on them briefly, not digging in them deeper so that we can get an idea of what it is that Jesus might be saying. First of all, I think when he says that our righteousness ought to be greater than that of the Pharisees, he's not talking about our Outward behavior ought to exceed that of the Pharisees, I don't think. I think what he is saying is that our inward dispositions and our attitudes are just as important or maybe even more important than our outward actions. When he talks about being complete, he's talking about being whole and being an undivided person where we have integrity between our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes. And so I think Jesus is saying if we want to flourish in this world, we need to hear his words and take them to heart. And so he begins, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. Now, when he says, but I have said, he's not saying, um, don't worry about that law. But what he is saying is that uh, simply not murdering someone is not an indication that you're living under the reign of God. There were many, many people who were not followers of Jesus or God who don't go around murdering people. He is saying, you know, saying, hey, I didn't commit murder and thinking that that is a sufficient litmus test for affirming that, yeah, we're a follower of God or that we, our lives are aligned with God. He, he's like, I don't think so. Jesus says... That even being angry with someone to the point where it erupts from us in hateful words or actions 
is deadly. Can you all attest to that? Have you all experienced that? Jesus is saying that if we want to be a part of the kingdom of God, it's not enough not to carry through. And don't misunderstand, Jesus is not saying being angry with someone and saying harsh words to them is just as bad as murder. Uh, Some people like to uh, say, well, Jesus is just saying all sins are the same. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. But he is saying that our attitudes and our dispositions are just as important. And Jesus is not, he's not upping the ante like he's saying, you know, we used to say just don't commit murder and you're okay, but I'm saying, no, you're not even supposed to think the thought. Jesus is simply, that's what the law always meant. The law always meant uh, that um, we weren't to be so angry that hurtful and harmful words come out of our mouths. And this is such a big issue. He says, if you come to partake, if you come to the table and the altar to partake, and you remember uh, that you you have this disagreement, that someone has something uh, against you, that before you even partake, you should get up from the table and go make amends. Don't wait until tomorrow. Likewise, he says, if you've got conflict with someone, uh, even while you're on the way uh, to the courthouse to get a judgment on it, seek to reconcile and make peace with them while you're on the way. So in other words, not only is he saying, don't commit murder, don't be angry, but he's saying, seek harmony and reconciliation. Do you hear that? That's just the first of six. The second one, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Now, I mean, do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Where have you read those? Ten commandments. I know you're few, but you know where those come from, right? You knew where those came from, right? Ten commandments? Maybe. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. That's not sufficient litmus test for saying and for indicating that you are aligned with God. Inner thought can be just as harmful sometimes or can be harmful sometimes um, also. And notice in these next two, um, Jesus is pretty much talking to the men. Did you get that? I mean, he's pretty much talking to the men. Because if, you, if you've read the Old Testament laws, you know that often it was like if adultery was committed, who did you punish? The female, right? Most of the time it's the female that gets punished or blamed. It, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, nah. We're not playing that game where um, lust is blamed on the woman. No, it comes from the heart of the man. 
And Jesus is saying, I think in part, Jesus is saying, how can you give your all to your spouse if in your mind and if in your thoughts you're thinking about other women instead of your spouse? That is harmful to your relationship, whether you realize it or not, because you're not giving your all to that person. None of this thing of boys will be boys in the kingdom of God. Jesus demands a responsibility and equality that goes beyond the world. Remember in the first century, women were treated as inferior and oftentimes as property. That's why this next one, when he talks about divorce, and he says, you've heard it said, you know, just if you want to divorce, if you, if you divorce your wife, just give her a certificate stating the reasons you want to divorce her. And then it'll be okay. This is hard for us to get... I mean, in the first century, because of the status of women in society, uh, for a, a woman not to be part uh, of her father's family or a, a part of her husband's household was devastating. And in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 24, um, um, this is where it says, you know, if you want to divorce, you can just issue a certificate. Now, what had happened over time is there was this debate between the rabbis about what could you issue the certificate about. I mean, there were some rabbis who set the bar pretty high, and then there were some that said, if she makes a bad meal, you can write a certificate and say, that's it, I want a divorce, and send her away. See, this law um, was intended uh, not to say, um, not, to, not to create a, a loophole so you could get out of your marriage vows. It was supposed to set this higher bar. It's because you see, um, God's intention for marriage was that we would indeed remain in lifelong Loving relationships. And yet even when Jesus says, he, 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 does, he does acknowledge that in a fallen and broken world, sometimes divorce is a reality because of what happens in the relationship. And in this case, he, he, he says, except for, um, except for sexual infidelity. But you see, he's making it clear that the certificate of divorce is not just an easy way to boot your wife out on the street. If we're paying attention to what he's already said, it would seem like he would be saying, if you got differences, do your best to work them out.
And so Jesus continues. And he says, um, you've heard it said, take oaths. But I say, take no oath whatsoever. I don't know, for me, this one's kind of clear. I don't really think he's meaning that, you know, if you go to court, you shouldn't put your hand on and say, I swear to tell the truth. But maybe he does, I don't know. I think the point is he saying, why do you feel the need to swear on something? Your word ought to be good enough. Your life ought to be such that people would say, when he or she says yes or no, I don't have to worry about it. I know it'll happen or I know it won't happen. And, and I think that the way this is, is written where it says, um, again, you have heard it said, uh, don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. I wonder if part of that also is warning us against bargaining with God. Yeah? Well, God, I'll do this if this happens. But we see that Jesus' concern in this whole passage is this integrity between our actions and our word, between our inner and our outer. Our outward living ought to be a reflection of our inner dispositions. We ought to be a whole person. He continues. And he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, this is straight from Scripture. Do you know the context under which it was written? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's not saying, well, if someone takes your eye out, you must take their eye out. If somebody cuts your hand off, you must cut their hand off. It was intended because you know what happened in the ancient world? This never happens today, right? Never happens today. Someone cuts your hand off, so you decide to cut both their legs and both their arms off. Or or you decide you'll just kill them. See, it was a law that was intended to keep people from overreacting and escalating violence by doing something that made no sense based on what was done to them. The law was not intended to say, well, if someone cuts your hand off, you have to cut their hand off. That was not the intent of the law. And Jesus says... I say, if they slap you on the right cheek, turn the left cheek. If they take your t-shirt, give them your coat. Although in some, um, uh, uh, the Greek of that would imply, um, if they take your outer garments, give them your undergarments, is really what the Greek implies. So if if they take your outer garments, just strip down and go naked.
In the Roman world, a soldier could demand that people would carry their stuff for a mile. But they were limited to a mile. Jesus says, if they, if they demand that you carry their stuff for a mile, carry it for two. And, 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 and what we don't get in some of this is Jesus is not just saying be a, a, a doormat for people to walk over. These actions that would be taken, if someone slapped you on the right cheek and you turned your left cheek and said slap it, that would be a non-violent, um, shameful act toward them, if that makes sense. If people were to take your clothes and so you were just to strip everything off, it would be an indication of just how unjust you were being treated. And likewise, if a soldier asked you to carry something for a mile and you carried it for two miles, they would be at risk of being accused of doing something wrong. So I think it's, it's important for us to understand that, that Jesus is not simply saying that we are to be doormats, but He is saying there are some times when no retaliation is a proper way to act. A far cry from our desire so often to get revenge and to retaliate for what has been done to us. I mean, that is the way of the world, isn't it? And then finally, Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, no one can figure out where the second half of this comes from. Um, love your neighbor is seen throughout. Uh, there is no place in Scripture where there is a law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, so the only thing we can speculate is that somehow in the teaching over the years, what came to be understood is, well, what God really means is that we are to love our neighbors, we're to love our friends, but those who are our enemies or aren't our friends, we don't have to love them especially those Samaritans. We can hate them and want bad to happen to them. But Jesus kind of laughs. I mean, I love this. Jesus just kind of laughs. And He says, you know, the most ungodly people do that. How do you think that makes you special? Almost ungodly people love those who love them. Big whoopee! I say, love your enemies. Now I got to tell you, this passage is the one that we love the most to sweep aside and to put under the rug and to say, no, Jesus didn't really mean that. He just wanted us to know how difficult things were so we would run to Him for help and pray for forgiveness so that we could be in heaven even though our lives don't look any different than everybody else's. I got news for you. I don't know how you read that passage of Scripture and come to that conclusion. It seems very clear to me that Jesus 
is concerned that his followers will live in the world differently than the rest of the world. We will not be satisfied just not to commit murder. We will not be satisfied not to, just not to commit adultery. We will be concerned about our inner dispositions and our attitudes. We won't just be satisfied uh, that we love our neighbors. We will seek to love all people. Even those who do terrible things. Even those who persecute us. In the first century, Jesus' disciples were persecuted. And I don't mean they just couldn't put the Ten Commandments up on the school board, on the school walls. They were really persecuted. They were tortured. And yet, they continued to proclaim and to forgive those who persecuted them. Now, Jesus doesn't say it's simple, it's easy. Following Christ was never meant to be as easy as saying, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. It was intended for us to allow the grace and the Spirit of God to wipe away and to clean away all of the muck that's built up in our hearts and our souls because we've lived in this upside-down and fallen world. It's intended to clear that away so that the image of God that has been placed in all of us might shine forth. And our righteousness might be greater than that of the Pharisees. Because we are a whole person whose outward actions and inward attitudes and dispositions are aligned with God's nature and God's will, and God's coming kingdom. In other words, Jesus was saying, live in love like me. Even in the midst of an upside-down world. Because it is the only true way to flourish. Otherwise, we get washed up with the rest of the world and contribute to the brokenness and the fallenness rather than the redemption and restoration. Indeed, hear Jesus' words this day. You have heard it said, but I say, allow your inner dispositions to be aligned with God Love your neighbor, but also love your enemy. Hear, hear the Spirit speak to us this day that we may be kingdom people today and every day. Amen.